0: I'm Lee, and welcome to Inside Intercom. This week, we are talking about marketing. Specifically, what is the role of marketing at companies that think of themselves as being product first? Companies that believe in building products so great that they sell themselves. And at one point in time, we at Intercom certainly thought of ourselves along those lines. Now, you might think that you're going to hear from a marketing person talk about this topic, but actually, we're going to bring in a product perspective today. So in this episode, we're going to hear from Brian Donahue, Intercom's Director of Product Management. Why was it so important for our product teams to shift their thinking on marketing? Because product first thinking works when you're a small startup and the people building the product are the marketers as well. But at some point, for the company to grow faster and to scale, you're going to have to invest more time and money explaining what you're building and why. And you've got to do it in terms that resonate with the market, not just your peers. So Brian had to figure out what it meant for product to work alongside marketing. Of doing things as simple as setting delivery dates for new product features and agreeing on the words we use to describe things on our landing pages. Let's listen to Brian as he gave a talk at the Intercom World Tour last year. He spoke about the traps that product first teams tend to fall into that blocked them from putting out things that actually get used. And he also shares the experience that we went through at Intercom and how we overcame those same traps ourselves. If you like this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. But without further ado, here's Brian. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com.
1: Hey, folks. Three years ago, I joined Intercom as a product manager, and one of the lures to join Intercom was that it sold itself as a product-first company. We said that three years ago and repeat that mantra to ourselves today. We'll, We'll tell anyone who will listen. We thump our chests when we say that. It's a badge of honor, a badge of legitimacy, a badge of a new, better way of building a company. And tonight what I want to talk about is the arrogance hidden inside that product-first mindset and the traps that await you if you adopt that philosophy. But first, let's make sure we know what we mean when we say product-first, right? And I think it's important to, to recognize that it's implicitly set up in contrast to what came before. And what came before was sales-driven companies, right? And their motto is, hey, if we sell it, the product team has to really quickly go and build it. And actually, at First blush, that kind of makes sense, right? Because if customers are willing to shell out cash for something, surely that's a good way to make sure you only build valuable product, right? But everyone in here knows the inevitable story of what happens, right? Your big customers end up dictating your roadmap. You have no product vision. Soon your product turns into incoherent bloatware. It's a Frankenstein product, right? So then we move on to marketing-driven companies, and they're they're slick, polished, and promising the moon, you know, and they they have no problem pitching a product that has at best a tangential relationship to the actual thing customers are going to get, or even pitching a product that, you know, hasn't really actually been built yet. I mean, this still happens all the time. Dan Kaplan framed this this tarnished legacy of, of marketing by saying this, he said, Many of history's most brilliant marketing strategies were crafted to persuade customers to believe things that were lies, buy things they didn't need, and and do things that were actually bad for them. You know, think about the cigarette industry here. Or maybe you remember the the, uh, quote from VC blogger Fred Wilson a couple years ago, and he said, marketing is what you do when your product or service sucks. So marketing has a bit of a bad name here, uh, particularly in the tech industry. So product first comes along in contrast to all of that. It's all about building a product so great that it sells itself, right? All you need to worry about is building something customers love. And in this subscription-based model world that we live in now, where it's quick and easy to actually change, your product better deliver, right? So what choice do we have but to be in a product first world? And in this setup, the R&D team is, is held up as the heart of the company, right? The success of everyone else is predicated on the success of this R&D team. It's all about the product. And just to burst our insular tech bubble, of course, product first is nothing new, right? You know, you can think about the the really sexy companies of of yesteryear, like Procter & Gamble, you know, toilet paper, tissues, detergent, toothpaste. Their CEO, Bob McDonald, said, we know from our history that promotion may win quarters, but innovation wins decades. A couple months ago in the New York Times, there was an article with an employee of, of Dyson. So move on to bigger, exciting, physical things. Now we got those big, loud hand dryers and stuff like this. But he said, hey, you're talking about the founder, James Dyson told us, focus on the product, everything else would follow. But no idea or not, we at Intercom, hey, we're big believers in this product first philosophy. And in no small part, this is a result of two of our founders, Owen, and our CEO, and Dez, who you heard talking earlier, both of them had design backgrounds themselves. Oh, and before he was CEO, he actually was a contract visual designer to start out his career. And Des was a UX man by trade. I mean, their CV was actually product first, right? So I'm not here to tell you that product first itself is a mistake, but I am here to tell you that it's a philosophy that comes with hidden traps. I want to share the ones that we on the product team at Intercom had to pull ourselves out of, hopefully with only flesh wounds to show for it. So the first trap is this, implicit in a product-first mindset is the belief that the best product always wins. And be honest, those of you who work on product teams, I mean, that's actually what drives you, right? And this optimistic view of the world that it's a genuine meritocracy, I think it's actually relatively new. And I think it's directly attributable to the scent of Apple. If you can, for those of you who remember 15 years ago, if you think back then, when you had Apple had the laptop, the desktop OS, was miles ahead of the competition, Windows, right? But I mean, it had measly market share, and and few of us early Apple fans ever thought we'd see the day when Apple would be the incumbent. I mean, back then, the better product was almost always the underdog product. But fast forward through the iPod and the iPhone, and all of a sudden it's like every CEO and every non-techie friends and family, it's like all of a sudden everyone has good product taste, right? Or what about Google, right? Their search engine, you know, it was the best product became the dominant product, right? It's great, it's a great world. And at first it was in the no techies and pretty soon Google's the verb. We live in a meritocracy, right? This is just naive. Let's look at another incumbent, another incredibly dominant product, Salesforce. What's amazing about their, their position is I genuinely have not heard of a single person who tells you they really like using Salesforce. It's actually enthusiastic about Salesforce, but talk to anyone in a sales team and will tell you the first thing I'm going to fucking do if I'm a person one time, I'm going to get Salesforce. So it's amazing. It's like their, it's like their Microsoft office in the nineties. Everyone has it and no one likes it. But if you want to continue living in this optimistic world where the best product always wins, remember this, even if you do genuinely have a superior product, even if your customers know that you have a better product, your competition will quickly follow. In our field of tech, fast followers are really frickin' fast, right? I mean, just at Snapchat. I mean, Facebook is huge, but they're pretty damn nimble when they're copying your features, right? I mean, Snapchat actually explained in their IPO their their competitive advantage, their moat, was they have a consistent velocity of product innovation. They will innovate so fast and so successfully that no one will catch them. Sounds easy enough, right? Yeah, no problem. We're we're, we're feeling good here on the product team. Really risky, really risky. So the first trap of the product-first mindset is this stubborn belief that the best product always wins. And if you believe that, this leads us to the second trap, which is this willful naivety about marketing. We fell headfirst into this trap at Intercom. For starters, we were intentionally slow to hire sales and marketing for the first couple of years. John Collins, our, our managing editor, who's talking on our, our book somewhere out there, uh, he used to work in the, at the Venerable Irish Times newspaper in, in Dublin, and he told me he was initially recruited by Owen and Dez with the enthusiastic pitch of, we don't, we don't even have a marketing team. But you could argue that John, who initially focused just on our blog, he, could argue he was our first marketing hire. And it was Matt, who was, who's now our director of product marketing, the first person who actually had marketing in his title. He actually dug out the LinkedIn email that Owen sent him. Owen, our CEO sent him, trying to pitch him intercom. And Owen goes, the product almost completely sells itself. And we spent nothing on sales and marketing. Remember, he's trying to hire a marketing person here. So, but again, it's product first, held up as this big badge of honor, right? But Owen also said in his email, he said the next step change in the company for our growth has come from explaining to the world what we're building and why. And this approach makes sense, right? Get product market fit first, then you start to push the pedal on sales and marketing. The problem was that this willful ignorance of marketing had already seeped into us on the product team. The director had a very influential voice in the company. The marketing team, they didn't really, to be honest. Like, we were, on the product team, we were really slow to adapt to working with them. We, we, it was just like to the side. There wasn't much of a partnership. We were totally guilty of giving late handovers to them. And by handovers, I mean there was zero collaboration going on. It's like, yeah, heads up, this is coming soon. And sometimes we didn't even give a heads up. We weren't even nice enough to say, yeah, we're going to pull the trigger on this. We just freaking pulled the trigger. Because we're the product team. We can fucking do that, Right. And another thing that we struggled with, and we're probably not the only ones who struggle with this, dates. For a while, we didn't give delivery dates at all, and then marketing says we can't really do our job here if you don't give us a date. So we say, sure, we'll give you dates, no problem. And then we consistently, and usually wildly, miss those dates. So for our new Educate Help Center project, we just launched this last year. We initially promised April, Then July, oh, this machine learning thing's a little tricky. No, push it to September. No, definitely December. We'll get it out in December. So we were world-class bad at dates. So just last summer, Matt comes over to Dummy. He's like, right, I got to address this problem here. And he he basically gives this internal talk to the R&D teams basically trying to address our naivety about marketing. He's like, hey, you guys have a fundamental misunderstanding of what marketing is about. Marketing itself means a bunch of different things. It's an umbrella term. There's a bunch of different skill sets going on with marketing. I mean, you've got events, right? You've got comms, demand generation. You've got product marketing, product education, brand design, and there's more stuff going on there. But then he had one section of his talk which was called Why Dates Matter. Imagine having to stand up in front of a group of your colleagues with a slide that says, why dates matter. I mean, it's like having to explain to to children why it's important to wash your hands after going to the bathroom, not just for your sake, but for the sake of everyone around you, right? I mean, but he had to do this because we had our product first blinders on. We were blind to how blind we were. And our naivety about marketing meant we didn't think dates really mattered, right? So we basically had zero credibility when it came to promising anything. So we had this tension between product and marketing, but it was only a one-way tension. I mean, for far too long, we on the product team, we weren't even really aware of the tension, and marketing was fighting this serious uphill battle. And one-way tensions, they're not healthy for anyone. Our product team's willful naivety, the second trap we let ourselves fall into, it had a real cost, because we were making it difficult for other teams in our company to actually just do their damn job. So now we don't give dates until they're actually real dates or close to real dates. And what that means is our roadmap has no dates on it at all. We just have a list of our top five prioritized projects and that's it. And even when we start a project, we still don't give a date because it's still made up at that point. So we wait till we get to our first beta, see what the feedback is like, and that's the point at which we say, okay, we can actually give a date because it's going to be pretty real now. I want to give another example of our marketing naivety and, and the even my naivety here, back in 2015, we made Intercom real-time, which meant messages sent between customers and the businesses were instant, right? And now, we could compete in the live chat world. So I wrote this big, long blog post for the launch. I, I gave it this real modest title, I just said, hey, live chat was great, but now it's history, you know, product team Intercom, we're modest, we're, we just play things down. As you know, I said, live chat is broken. I said, it's based on this antiquated phone call model where everything's synchronous. You have to wait around for someone to answer. You hang up, it's gone forever. It's transient. The, the new world is based on messaging, right? Sure, it can be real time, but it seamlessly moves over to asynchronous communication and then back again to real time. Like this is iMessage, you know, this is WhatsApp. This is the way the world is going. The, the live chat model is dead and gone and the messaging model is the future. It's like pretty solid product proposition, right? So what do we see on our marketing page? Live chat is freaking everywhere. It's on the title. It's in the navigation. It's in the URL. It's like the marketing team is completely contradicting the product team. I mean, you can almost hear Matt sitting back and like shaking his head and laughing at us. But it's like, but seriously, folks, do you really want me to pitch Intercom as like the flexibility of asynchronous and synchronous messaging all wrapped up together? I mean, he's like, come on, give me a break here. So Matt very gently points out, you know, there's some about 100,000 global searches for live chat product, and there's like about nothing for asynchronous, yada, yada, something, something, whatever you want to call it. I mean, if people are looking for live chat software, that's what we need to tell tell them, that's what we have. We, we, We can't introduce something new without framing it in today's terms. So while the product team are focused on the future and building bridges to that future, the marketing team have to get Perspective customers to the bridge. And sometimes that means using the exact phrase you're trying to kill. So this discrepancy between the product thinking and the marketing result wasn't itself in itself ideal, but at least we now have a proper two-way tension. At least now we can start asking better questions about the product approach and the marketing approach. So trap one, believing the best product always wins, and trap two, this willful naivety about marketing, lead us directly to the third trap. Product first folks become product purists. And one symptom of this product purity dogma is that anything done for marketing purposes is sullied and tarnished. You know, product purists view marketing as separate and independent from their precious little product creation, right? Product purists think, build it and they will come. When Matt gave his talk to the R&D team last summer, and it's starting to feel like a bit of a dressing down basically It gave us, isn't it? it, it A question came from an engineer in the audience, and the engineer said, hey, did we build that recent Twitter integration just for marketing purposes? I mean, a bit of a poison dart he threw out there at Matt, right? Well, fundamental to our pitch is we're a cross-platform communications company, right, so of course we built that to deliver on our pitch. I mean, why is it wrong to build something that delivers on what you're selling to your customers? It's kind of like saying, do we just build that feature because we think customers are more likely to buy our product if we have it. I mean, wouldn't that be terrible if we did that? Jeez, we should never do something like that. But I think think if you actually unpick the engineer's question, I think what he was actually asking was, did we build a kind of crappy integration just so we could say we could have it? Which, interestingly, is not a question directed at marketing, is a question directed at product. So implicit here is that product teams build things from like this pure motivation, whereas marketing team is always doing things for the wrong reason. But both are working to the same end, right? You're trying to build something that's useful for people, explain to them, convince them that it's useful so it actually gets used. Marketing has a bad name. And we all really need to cop on here because this product purity mindset is bullshit. Another thing this mindset ignores is that the story needs to guide your product decisions. Simon Sinek, who, or Cynics, not quite sure, who's written a bunch of books on marketing and leadership. You know, he said, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And you can just read the cover and you get that. So you're good with just the cover on there. Or as Luke Wroblewski, who but any of you designers will know, and he tweeted this, paraphrasing someone, paraphrasing someone else. He said, don't aim for a number, aim for a narrative. narrative. it sounds obvious, right? I don't think it really is. Or you've probably heard this before. I bet the product folks in this room need reminding we certainly did, because by default, product people aren't thinking about the story. We're sweating and stressing to bring a feature to life. And I bet most of you know about uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, right? It's this huge tome of a book. We all know we're supposed to read it, and we all are gonna read it next month, right? It's like Joyce's Ulysses, but you can read Michael Lewis's latest book, and he's got nice, short, compacts, great little cheat sheet to work, but basically, getting to the cucks of, uh, just made up a word there, getting to the brunt of what Kahneman was actually saying is 20 years of research, right? Is really proving that the human need for a narrative is overpowering. It's how we convince ourselves of what we do and what we buy. And it's not rational. So ignore this truth at your own peril. On the product team, particularly early on, we did just that. We had our product purist mindsets on. I mean, all good companies impose a real pressure to keep shipping, and it's so tempting in that environment to just ship half a story, which is a shame. So last year we did this big Messenger redesign project, and we had a design for these new expanded profiles in the Messenger, and they had this deceptively complex interaction, and it seemed like a nice to have, and we're like, no, no, we're not gonna, not gonna do those. So about three-quarters of the way through this, this long project, uh, I finally started thinking about the story for this. And I'm like, well, you know, our mission is make, make business personal. And uh, so it's pretty much a no-brainer that for our, the messenger is like our flagship product, right? It's a no-brainer. It's got to be our most personal messenger. It's a fucking no-brainer we got to do these. I almost like slapped myself in the face in the room saying, how do we, we ever scope these out? So it was obvious and it was easy, but it was super late because I was never thinking about the freaking story. I was just thinking about the product. So the late decisions are painful. So what we've done here to try to fix this, and we've only done this in the last couple of months, is is we've actually given an explicit place in our process for the story. Soon after the problem statement is written, we draft the story for what we're building. And even more importantly, we we had this big internal effort since like December, January, to try to get better at scoping smaller. Messenger, we had all these big projects last year. We got to get back down to scoping smaller. And alongside this big effort to scope smaller, we said, but we can actually scope in stuff if it's essential for the story. So while we're sitting here beating ourselves over, is this a bare essential for getting to beta? Is this bare essential functionality? We can say, hey, no, we still need this so we actually have something to tell. So we actually have a story to tell. So this is another trap, forgetting the importance of the story. You have to forcefully inject it into your process. At least that's what we found we had to do. Otherwise, it just becomes an afterthought. But when we think about this this chasm between product and marketing, I think what's easy to forget is that great product people are often naturally good marketers and vice versa. If you look at Intercom in the early days, we were punching way above our weight from early on with Dez prolific at all these, all these blog posts he was writing. And he did it not because he loved getting followers on Twitter. He does love getting followers on Twitter. But because he knew how important the blog was to getting traction in the early days. And Owen, our CEO, was actually responsible for the design and content uh, and, uh, on our marketing site here. So we said we had no sales and marketing, or certainly no marketing, but marketing was actually alive and well. We just didn't call it that, right? It just wasn't acknowledged. And I think a great example of this is what is surely the most copied thing in Intercom that we've ever done. It has nothing, sadly, to do with the product. It's on our homepage. It's this illustration. You might recognize, and we talk about the old way and everything's a mess and nasty, and then the new way, this calm, beautiful world that our product will deliver, right? And we, this, this, this concept really resonated. And how do we know? Because it spread like wildfire. It seemed like every week we were seeing this concept. Somewhere else on some other homepage there, it was like, wow, this is the thing that's resonating. The damn marketing image. But why did this illustration resonate so much, right? Because in just a couple of seconds, customers can create kind of a mental model of intercom. Like this concept of bundling, of simplifying, simultaneously captures the pain you're experiencing now and gives like a hope of a better place to get to, right? It it told a story, a story that's hard to tell in words, and it told it visually in a way that sticks in your head. I mean, this is skillful marketing. And who actually did this? If we look at the original sketch for this, it came from Owen, our CEO. This was his idea. And I think the story that Des and Owen helped shape this narrative around our product, it gave us huge breathing space. People became customers despite shortcomings in our product because they believed in what we were doing. Our company story, our product vision, they bought us huge forgiveness for what that product actually delivered. And that was so valuable in the early days. So I think the best founders naturally blend product and marketing. But in a product first company, once you split into product and marketing teams, which is inevitable, that natural blending that existed in the founders heads gets ripped apart and suddenly becomes monochromatic. And you're left with this unhealthy rift between product and marketing. So where does this leave us? Product first itself isn't misguided. But if you're adopting as a philosophy, remember the traps that await you. The belief that the best product always wins. Willful naivety about the value of marketing. The product purist mindset. And forgetting that the story drives human decisions. Good product is compelling product, and to be compelling, you need a story. Finally, as you're growing your company, think about optimizing for the right tensions. If everyone always agrees, then you're going to be completely blind to your weaknesses. And if everyone always disagrees, it's really hard to make progress. Don't hire marketing people who just try to craft a story for whatever the hell the product team decided to build. Marketing people should be fighting for a better story, which often means fighting for for more scope. And the product team should be fighting to release product faster so they can actually find out if they've solved the problem. But both are trying to build a product that actually gets used and has value. So hire for people who will expose this tension, who will lean into the tension and lean into the debate and embrace the dissent. The world doesn't need product purists. The world needs great products that actually get used and can make their little dent in the universe.
0: you've been listening to the inside intercom podcast for more episodes visit soundcloud.com intercom if you'd like to subscribe search for inside intercom in itunes or stitcher and for even more great content check out blog.intercom.com